We're going to be in the book of James today, chapter 1, and uh, we're actually going to pick up uh, in verse 12 in just a few moments and uh, just want to make one, uh, say one thing about starting in verse 12 instead of verse 9, because we went through verse 8. Uh, James kind of gets into rich and poor and some interesting dynamics that, that uh, are just interesting in those couple of verses, two verses, three verses maybe, and uh, uh, gets into, you know, poor people and rich people and all this kind of thing. And that was a, how many of you know that was a big deal back in the first century? Like that was a huge thing. The 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 separation between rich rich folks and poor poor folks was huge, and some of us feel like it's still huge, right? We still think that's a big a big gap. And and uh, I would say this, you know, uh, whether you're rich or you're poor, doesn't really matter to the Lord. What matters to the Lord is how you steward and use whatever He's put in your hands, whether that's a whole lot or a whole little. Uh, God wants you to be faithful with that, and He doesn't want you to rest your eternity on the achievements of your life. Can I say that's important to say in a city like West Lafayette? It's important not to rest your laurels or put your crowns in the achievements of your life, in the degrees that hang on your wall, or the endorsements that you enjoy, or the great paying job that you have or don't have. It's important that we realize that none of those things when we get to eternity will really matter that much. In fact, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that most of those things will be tried by fire and the things that don't really matter will all get burned up anyway. And the only thing that will last are the things that were eternal. So that's all I want to say about those three verses. That was a short sermon. We can go now. No, we can't. No, we can't. Well, I've, uh, I've called this message death by temptation or life through the word. How many of you know that the Bible says very early on, you have before you today life and death. Choose you this day. Will you choose life? Will you choose death? And that's really where James goes here uh, in verse 12. Well, today, besides being Father's Day, besides a great dedication today, today for my family is what we call gotcha day. Okay, that, And if you're not in the adoptive world, that is the day that my adoption, our adoption of our four kids from Poland became final. And we went to court and the judge said, Ooh, so we celebrate gotcha day uh, generally every year, and just, you know, I, we don't always do something huge, but uh, today we're going to cook steak at my house probably. Uh, but we, and that's more for me, I guess, than them. Uh, but anyway, we celebrate, we celebrate, gotcha, that's worth celebrating. And uh, one quick story from, from our time in Poland. We lived in Poland for seven weeks while we worked on adoption. That's a long time to live in Poland. I'm just going to tell you that right now. That's a long time for an American to live in Poland. And we had been there for about uh, three hours, and uh, the kids began, we were in this little apartment, okay? And I mean like, uh, I mean like two rooms, ten people in two rooms for seven weeks. Not really that long. Uh, and the kids begin to play hide and seek, okay? <laughs> like, well, that's a, that's a great idea. 
<clears throat> and remember, you know, our, our full four folk kids from Poland did not speak any English at all. They, they, none at all. Abby knew like three words and that was it. And none of the, none of the little ones knew anything. And uh, the people that we were renting this apartment from built furniture for a living. And so they had built these cabinets, kind of like Ikea cabinets is what they had. And, and so they had storage in them and whatever. And, and we told the kids, like, look, you can play hide and seek, but don't hide in the cabinets because I didn't want to break them. You know, I didn't want something dumb to, I mean, if you have children and you know, when they start doing stuff like that, dumb stuff happens. And I didn't want to deal with that. So, so I said, don't hide in the cabinets. Well, I'll give you one guess which of my kids decided to hide in the cabinet. It was Isaac. Because he is by far the most ornery of all my children. He's like, exactly my point. And so Isaac, he's four years old at the time, okay, four years old. So he, he hides in the cabinet where nobody can find him because nobody's looking in the cabinets because guess who said, don't hide in the cabinets? Mom and dad, right? So they're hiding everywhere. Nobody can find Isaac. Where's Isaac? Well, finally, after a while of messing with us, he comes out of the cabinet, big smile on his face, and, you know, he was hiding. And we said, Isaac, we told you not to hide in the cabinet. Why did you hide in the cabinet? And he says this. Shiloh told me to. We said, Isaac, Shiloh doesn't speak English. Did you somehow pick up Polish somewhere along the way or what? How many of you know that the sweetest, and I'll say this to you wonderful people, your, your wife's not here, but I'll say it to you. The sweetest, delightful, most loving little girl in the whole world will someday lie to your face. Lie to your face. How many of you know that's true? Here's the point that I'm trying to make. Sweet babies will lie, cheat, and steal to get what they want because somewhere along the way, our regular human fleshly nature gives in to temptation. Right? Now, I won't, don't, don't raise your hand, but how many of you have ever succumbed to a temptation that uh, came your way, an opportunity maybe to sin or to compromise the way that you are living your life, and it came your way, and sometimes we resisted. I found that the older you get, the more mature you get in Christ. You ought to have better resistance towards temptation, but little kids don't have that, so Isaac decided he spoke Polish. And that's a natural, normal thing for us to do. Well, James is going to deal with temptation right here as we go. Here's a quote for you. Opportunity may knock only once, but temptation leans on the doorbell. Temptation leans on the doorbell. I love this section because James begins it and ends it with promises. Here's the first one in verse 12. He says, God blesses those who patiently endure testing. Well, that was last week's sermon. If you missed it or you've already forgotten what it was about, go watch it online and you can catch up about enduring testing and getting through the trials of our life. Now here in verse 12, he adds the caveat or the wrinkle, not just of trials, but of also temptation. Blessed are those who patiently endure testing and temptation because afterward they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. That's a great promise, isn't it? 
that will receive the crown of life. See, what I think James is saying is we have blessings in this life. We have blessings here on this earth when we endure trial, when we get through things, when we endure uh, life and the things that come our way, we have blessing. But that little word afterward is a greater promise, isn't it? How many of you know if God gave you everything he could give you in this life, if you had all the money and all the love and all the whatever, fill in the blank, if you had all that, none of that would compare to the promise of the crown of life in the life to come. Because with all of that in this life and nothing in the life to come, we're still lost. So that little word that he puts in there afterward, when this life is over and we've endured testings and temptation we will receive the crown of life. What does it mean to endure in this instance? Well, don't abandon their faith. People that don't abandon their faith when, they're, when they go through things, when they struggle, they don't give up on their faith. They don't become bitter and full of rage towards God. Anyone ever been tempted to become bitter? And I think it means we guard our heart against hardening. Here's what I mean. Uh, Israel, Israel endured 400 years of slavery in Egypt. God sets them free, does miracle after miracle after miracle. And yet, the Bible says, those who were in the wilderness hardened their heart against God. I mean, you ever read that in Hebrews and go, what were they thinking? All the miracles and the faithfulness and the blessings God brought in their life, and yet... They hardened their heart against him. And the Bible says they didn't enter the promise because they didn't guard their heart. It's a big deal to guard your heart because it's the wellspring of life. This language in James is similar to what Jesus says to the churches of Revelation, how they'll receive the crown of life. Those who endure will, will not have their lampstand snuffed out, things like that. It's similar language. Patient endurance through trials, which is circumstance, but also through temptation brings life. Here's the truth about temptation. It's in verse 13. Remember when you're being tempted, do not say, by the way, there's an operative word there. It's the same word that we found last week. It's called when. Temptation is not an avoidable thing. How many of you are with me? There'll always be temptation in our life. Everyone in this room's been tempted in your life, probably this morning. When you are being tempted, do not say God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong, and he never tempts anyone else. Temptation, verse 14, this is, this is the truth. Temptation comes from our own desires. Did you hear what I said? You can't blame God for our temptations. Neither can you blame the devil for your temptations. They come from you. Isaac, bring me my water. I'm getting scratchy. He's been, he's so thrilled to bring me. Don't mess with me. Just give me my water. <laughs> I told you. 
Temptations come from us. He wants us to understand that these temptations are not necessarily from outward sources, but they are birthed in the desires of our lives. They entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful action, and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. James wants us to understand that the end result of unchecked temptation is death. He uses here this analogy of birth. He says, guys, temptation doesn't begin with death. How many of you know that's true? That's the end result. That's the final step of temptation is death. It begins, though, in in our own desires. It begins with us as people. Here's the Here's the the steps, if you will. Temptation comes from our own desires. I call these appetites. We have appetites. Now, we're going to do a series on appetites in October if you're really interested in it. But we have, how many of you know you have appetites? And I'm not saying like you prefer, you know, Olive Garden to Red Lobster or you like, uh, I'm going to make everybody hungry, or you like Zagsby's over Chick-fil-A or what, I mean, that's sacrilegious, right? But whatever. Or canes, I love canes. Uh, It's not that, that's not what I'm talking about. Appetites, exactly. I'm talking about those natural desires in our life that, uh, that we have as people. Temptation lures us to satisfy those desires in ways that are outside of God's plan. Did you hear what I said? So for instance, eating is not sinful, praise the Lord. But gluttony is. Sleep is not sinful, but laziness is. Sex is not sinful, but when you pursue that outside of the bounds of God's covenant, it is. Does that make sense? And so temptations like, hey, you've got these natural desires that you want to fulfill and you want to meet those needs in your life and it's normal. It's like we get hungry every day and we need sleep every once in a while. Whatever, we have these natural desires. What temptation does is it comes in and it begins to entice us. And the word uh, entice there is really uh, equivalent to our word bait. It's like bait, bait and switch. Or, you know, if you, if you go fishing and you use the right kind of bait, you're going to catch some good fish. And so that's the idea that James is talking about here. He's like, look, that temptation becomes a bait to us to fulfill that thing in a way that's outside of God's plan. That's where it begins. But the desires themselves, this is really important. I want you to know the desires themselves are not sinful. It's not sinful for those things, their natural desires. The secret in keeping these appetites under is uh, the secret is keeping the appetites under the lordship of Jesus. We'll talk about how to do that in a little bit. The second step in this idea of, of oh man, I'm having all cuts. <coughs> <coughs> Excuse me. Let's just start over. The second step is this, temptation manifests in deception. It manifests in deception. In other words, the enemy comes in and he says, oh, there's a natural desire. And I'm, you know, there's all these opportunities. Some of you know in a world like ours, there's all kinds of opportunities to fulfill those desires in ways that are outside of God's plan. Like all the time, there's opportunities for that. And so the enemy comes in, he's like, okay, how can I, what kind of bait here can I put in front of this guy to, to deceive them? And, and an example would be Eve. 
<clears throat> is there anything wrong with knowledge? Is having knowledge sinful? No, knowledge is good. Uh, knowledge is a, is, a, is a good thing to pursue. Reading and writing and studying and all these, these, are, these are good pursuits. Well, how did, the, how did the enemy, the serpent, tempt Eve? He said, God, God didn't really mean what he said about you, you know, dying if you eat from this tree. He just knows that if you eat, you're going to get all this knowledge and you're going to have understanding that you didn't have before. So you can disobey God to gain something that is positive. Does that make sense? That's how the deception came in. I, I love it when Jesus was tempted by the devil in, in the gospels, in the wilderness, and over and over, the enemy came in and he deceived him by taking a scripture and twisting it just a little bit so that I don't know what, if it, why he thought he was going to trick the logos and the, you know, the actual word of God, but nonetheless, he used the scripture to try to deceive Jesus to entice him to sin. And over and over, Jesus rebuked him with the word of God. So temptation comes as deception. It's still not sin yet when we're being tempted and we're being deceived. But then the third step in temptation is this, unchecked. Temptation births sinful action. This is where temptation and deception come together and they're conceiving sin. And we begin to move from desire to action, our will. We choose to sin. I just want to say that again. When we sin, we choose to sin. How many of you know that's true? You don't accidentally sin. You don't fall into sin, you know, and I'm talking about the, the, the sins that are common to us, the, the temptations that are common to man and mankind. We don't accidentally sin. We choose to sin. David made a conscious decision to sin with Bathsheba. We make conscious decisions to sin against the Lord. It's not an accident when we sin. Much of the sin when birthed is emotional. It's based on how we feel, isn't it? I feel hungry. I feel whatever. And I don't want to go into too many details, but we, we get emotionally charged in the deception of the sin, and then it gives birth to something that is broken. But maturity, maturity causes us to make decisions by our, our will, in our discipline. Can I use the word discipline? Discipline's challenging, isn't it? Have you found that to be true? Disciplining yourself is, is challenging. It's hard to do, but maturity, a mature believer will learn how to discipline. In fact, the Bible tells us that we learn discipline through what we suffer. When we go through difficulty, when we go through trial, when we go through temptation and we're being tempted to sin or to compromise, that's actually when we are maturing in our lives with the Lord. When we decide how we're going to handle it in a righteous way. Making decisions will bring uh, that are disciplined decisions and godly will bring maturity in our life. And the last thing that, that James says happens when, when this, in this process of giving birth to sin is that sinful action, when allowed to grow, gives birth to death. 
It's the fastest way to die. A spiritual death, and how many of you know that there are some compromising sins that lead to physical death? There are some things that we can put our energy and effort to that will lead to physical death, but all unchecked sin will lead to spiritual death every time. For the wages of sin is death. So James is acknowledging unrepentant sin. He's talking about when we allow it to grow, we let a sin in our life, we open the door through temptation to sin to ha- for sin to happen, and it grows in our life, and it attaches itself, and it puts its, you know, I always pictured it like the, the talons of an eagle or the talons of a hawk, and it sinks it in. You've probably seen hawks sink it into chickens. Used to happen in my house, the, you know, like that, and, and like you can't, they don't let go. That's how sin is in our life, especially unrepentant sin. When we sin and we repent immediately, and by the way, repenting is not just being sorry that you got caught. Repenting is turning around and walking the other direction. It's walking away from the sin that has caught us. So he's certainly talking about unrepentant sin, but I want to mention another thing that he's talking about. He's talking about repetitive habitual sin that we refuse. And and here's how it works. We sin. Oh, Jesus, I sin. Forgive me. I don't want to do that anymore. And then a week later, we're back at it. Maybe not even a week. And we repent again. Oh, God, forgive me. And we go back. And we, what's the Bible say? Uh, It's, it's like a dog returning to its vomit. I know it's disgusting. (laughs) One of the kids was like, ew, yeah. But that's the analogy, right? When we, when we, uh, here's how Peter says it, when we escape the corruption of the world by knowing the Lord, and then we allow ourselves to get entangled in it again, we are worse off at the end than at the beginning. He says this, it would have been better for you never to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and to turn your back on it over and over again. I mean, that's powerful, isn't it? When you think about people that, uh, uh, that are perpetual liars, like they just can't tell the truth. When you think about people that get caught in sexual sin and they get caught up in sexual sin, when you think about people that get caught up in sins of power and sins of money and things like that, that, that can take over our lives, and it's so easy in our world today. It's so easy. The fear that I have is this. It's in Hebrews chapter 10. And the author is reminding us about the law, and he says, For anyone who refused to obey the law of Moses was put to death without mercy. There was no mercy for people that refused to obey the law of Moses, and it only took a couple of people to say, Yep, that guy did that. Let's kill him. How many of you are glad that day's over? Pretty great. But here's what he says in verse, I'm in Hebrews 10, verse 29. He says, Look, if on the law of Moses, on the testimony of two witnesses, we would put people to death. Just think how much more worse the punishment will be for those who have trampled on the Son of God, who have treated the blood of the covenant which made us holy as an unholy thing, as if it were common, and have insulted and disdained the Holy Spirit who brings God's mercy to us. 
I mean, he's saying, if you know what is right and what is true, and you know about sin and what is sin and what is not sin and what is permissible in the things of God and what is not permissible in the things of God, and if you turn your back on it anyway and you indulge temptation and your flesh and your appetites, he says, there's no sacrifice for sin that is left for you. Here's what I think. I think that, I think this is what we would call the unpardonable sin. When you get to a point in your life because of habitual sin, and I'm talking about sin committed over and over and over and over and over and over, repented of maybe, but then over time, are you with me? You get to a place where your heart becomes so hard where repentance is no longer possible for you. And that's why not dealing with habitual sin or sin of the flesh that comes back over and over again, by why not dealing with it and not bringing it under his lordship and not dealing with the root of it, of the temptation, why not doing that is so very dangerous. There's a theology out there right now called hyper-grace. It's not a new theology. It's been around for hundreds of years, but it's come back into prominence. Have you heard, this is several years ago, but we basically have now erased, erased hell. Hell's, hell doesn't exist anymore. God loves you so much, you can just live how you want. You can do what you want and repent later. How many of you know that's really dangerous? And if you're living that way right now, you are on the precipice of a lot of pain and maybe eternity apart from God. Friend, I'm just saying to you, James is saying, guys, we cannot ignore the temptations of our life. We have got to be willing to bring those things under the lordship of Christ because disobedience, sinful things that are allowed to grow. Isn't that a key phrase in that verse? They are allowed to grow. They lead to death. You say, hey, I've been doing that a long time. Nothing bad has happened to me. Can I just say that sometimes it takes years for sin to mature? But in the Old Testament, there's a verse that says this, surely your sin will find you out. When I was a kid, my mom loved to quote that verse to me. Jeffrey, you better tell the truth because surely your sins will find you out. And I was like, okay, mom, I did it. (laughs) But it's much more serious. Eve disobeyed God when she was deceived by the serpent. Listen, but Adam sinned with his eyes wide open. Adam sinned with his eyes wide open. He was not deceived by the serpent. And the results, the maturity of that sin by the first Adam is still coming to fruition in our world today. Think about that. That one act of sin has brought the devastation and the brokenness 
we see in our world. That's the truth about temptation and its seriousness. Here's the key to temptation. If you want a key, it's this, James 1, 16. So don't be misled. I mean, have you ever blamed God for your sin? Well, if you had done this in my life, I wouldn't have sinned. Well, if my wife was this, I wouldn't have to sin. I wouldn't have to lust. Well, if I had enough money, I wouldn't have to steal. I mean, you know, Aladdin said that one. It was on TV last night. So like, James is like, look, I'm going to tell you how temptation leads to sin, gives birth to sin, which gives birth to death. It gives birth to death. So guys, don't deceive yourself. Don't lie to yourself about your appetites and about your struggles and about where you might fall short. But be honest about it. It's easy to mislead ourselves into thinking that God has abandoned us, that God doesn't love us, or somehow that he's holding out on us. And if he just release a little bit more of himself, then we could stand up against temptation. That's a lie. James says, don't buy into that garbage. Don't buy into those deceptions. You're saying, but Pastor Jeff, you just don't understand. You just don't understand my life and what I'm facing and what I've faced and the difficulty. Really? I don't understand temptation? The last time I checked, I'm a human with flesh. We all understand temptation. We all have opportunity to yield to temptation and die potentially or to have life. We all have that choice. I understand temptation. James says, don't buy those lies, those things that you whisper to yourself or maybe the enemy whispers to you. God doesn't tempt you. He's not holding out some power or some ability from you that you have to pray hard enough or fast long enough to get. God has poured out on your life everything you need for life and godliness. You lack nothing to stand and live in righteousness. Nothing. So don't deceive yourself. And just to prove his point, he says, don't deceive yourselves because of the goodness and the faithfulness of God. And, and what he's doing is kind of like a, a proof. He's proving that when you yield to temptation, you're deceiving yourself, you're lying to yourself, you're engaging your own appetites apart from God. But if you'll just pause long enough to remember the goodness and the faithfulness of God, you can stand against temptation. He says this in verse 17, whatever is good and perfect is a gift coming down to us from God our Father who created all the lights in the heavens. And he's talking about the sun and the stars and the moon. He never changes or casts shifting shadows. I think that remembering God and his power and his faithfulness and his grace in our life is the greatest deterrent to yielding to temptation. If you will have enough discipline in moments of temptation to pause and say, but wait a minute, God has been so good to me. God has been so faithful to me. I will not compromise against his word 
and against his will. He's been so faithful to me. Here's what he said. God gives only good and perfect gifts. He can't give gifts that are bad. You ever get a bad Christmas gift or birthday gift? And you're like, eh, thank you. That's not God. He only gives good gifts and perfect gifts. Everything God does in the world is good. Everything he does, even the things we don't understand or we don't like or we think are, you know, God, that's not how I would have done it. He's still doing it and it's still good. He is good. The way God gives is good. He doesn't buy into, well, it's the thought that counts kind of stuff, right? Both what God gives and how God gives is good. Even if it's hard, it's good. He gives to us motivated by his everlasting love. Here's the thought I had. He gives for our good from his goodness. He gives for our good from his goodness. That's powerful. He gives for our good from his goodness. The third thing about his giving, he gives constantly. He, he, James says it keeps coming down. It's like a present. Here, English, any, any English people, it's a present participle. That means it doesn't end. It is an ongoing thing. In the Greek, when it says everything he's giving coming down, means it's constantly coming down. It never lets up. It's like a waterfall that has a source that never dries up, that never ends. God is constantly giving good and perfect gifts to us down from the Father in heaven. It's, it, it, it's coming all the time, even when we can't see it. It's always coming. And then the last thing he says, because he doesn't change. So like if God made things that were good in Genesis 1 and he gave good gifts in Genesis 1, he's the God that never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so everything he does now is good. Every way he gives is good. Man, when you think about that, you realize he really is Jehovah Jireh. He's the God that provides. And if he provides, then we can say no to temptation. Why? Because whatever that appetite is that you're desiring to get met, to get fed, he's going to provide. Why? Because he gives. When I do premarital counseling, one of the things that we talk about is how you're God's provision for your spouse. You're not just like a random person who said, hey, I think we're compatible. No, no, no. You're God's provision for your spouse, and they are his provision for you. Why? Because God provides for us. He's the great provider. We don't have to wonder if he'll provide. Why? Because he is God, and he is the giver of good gifts. He cannot change. He doesn't shift like the shadows of the sun or the moon. He never distorts reality. You never go somewhere. I mean, the best place to be at night is a graveyard, right? If you want to freak yourself out, right? Go see all the shadows as the moon changes and the stars shine and all that. That's what freaks you out is all the shifting shadows. What James is saying, God is not going to distort reality. He's truthful and he's right and he's out there for us. He cannot change for the worse because he is holy. 
but neither can he change for the better because he's already perfect. He can't change for the worse. God can't get worse because he's holy, but he can't get better either because he's already perfect. Why does all this matter? Verse 18, because he's chosen us. Says he chose to give birth to us by giving us his true word. And we, out of all of creation, became his prized possession. And I realize stupid stuff happens to us in our life, difficult things happen to us, and we get to a place where we no longer feel like we are his prized possession. God, I've done too many things. I've sinned too much. There's been too much habitual sin in my life. There's been too many things that I've struggled with. Blah, 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 blah. All those things are lies from the enemy of our soul. Why? Because you're his prized possession and the enemy doesn't want you to know it. Because if he can keep you deceived, if he can keep you in the dark about God's love and God's plan for your life, he will get you to yield to temptation. James talks about how God has given birth to us, and what he's talking about is the idea of the new birth. The old birth wasn't good enough. It was useless. He said to Nicodemus, unless a man be born again, he cannot inherit the kingdom of God. God took our first birth, and he set it aside, and he said, you will not come to me based on your nobility or based on your position in life or based on your family heritage. How many of you know he set those things aside? And he gave us new birth through the word of God, the capital W word of God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. That's how he's given us birth. So because of this, we can't, we can't let our old birth, our flesh, lead us. We've got to be people of a new birth. 1 Corinthians 10 says this. There's no temptation that's taken you, but such as is common to men. That means like you're going to be tempted. But God, in his faithfulness, in his goodness, in his love, will provide a way of escape. How does he do that? How can we find the way of escape? One, don't lead yourself where you know you cannot go. Don't deceive yourself. If you know you shouldn't go that direction, don't go that direction. That's maturity. Two, watch and pray so that you don't fall into temptation. That's what Jesus told the disciples. Watch and pray if you're watching for the soon coming king and you're spending time in his presence, you're going to have a hard time giving in to temptation. Number three, take the escape route when he provides it. You got to really think about that practically. You got to really consider practically what are the mechanisms of sin in my life? What are the mechanisms of temptation? If that's your phone or your computer, turn it off. Get a flip phone. Seriously. If it's money, get some accountability. Find a way to be account. Like, I'm just saying, if you've got something that tends to grab onto you in temptation and sin, don't give it a place to grow. Build yourself around an insulation around it so you can live in victory. 
Whatever you've got to do, take the escape route. While we might be surrounded by more opportunity to sin than any other generation, we're also surrounded by more tools and more ability to escape it than any other generation. Number four, be willing to build barriers and make it hard to succumb, what I just said. Number five, trust the one who can save you from death. Why? Because he's chosen you. He's picked you out of all creation, out of everything that he could have chosen, out of every other person in the world that he could have chosen, he chose you. And all the wonderful things he created, out of all those things, he picked you. I don't know why, but he did. So the only question left Will you choose him? Will you choose him? See, it's a decision we make, isn't it? And it's not a one-time decision that we make when we walk to an altar. When I prayed when I was five at the pew or when I was 20 and I ran to the altar, whatever, it's a decision that I make Every day that I get up, am I going to serve God today or am I going to serve my flesh? Am I going to feed the spirit man in me or am I going to feed the flesh man in me? What am I going to do today? It's a decision every day. Will you choose the Lord? Will you choose the Lord? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you for helping us, God, when we are tempted. Thank you, God, that even when we succumb to temptation, that you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sin, to make us righteous again, to heal us. But God, too often in our lives, we repent and we make it right, but then we give sin a place to grow. And even though you've chosen us out of all of creation, and even though you've set us apart, even though you've called us by name, God, sometimes we just get things that hang on to us and cause sin to have a foothold in our life. But today, God, I pray there'd be people here brave enough, the courage, sick and tired of giving in to temptation to finally decide to be free. Heads bowed and eyes closed. Maybe you're here today and you say, you know, I've never chosen God. I, I, I've never felt like I could. I've never believed that God chose me. But if I'm honest today, man, I desperately need to choose the Lord. I need him to come into my life, to cleanse my sin, to make me clean. I want to be saved today. And I want you to pray for me, Pastor. If that's you all over the room, you need to be saved this morning. Would you lift your hand anywhere across this room? Just lift your hand to the Lord. I'll see it. Acknowledge it. Thank you. Others, you can put it right back down as soon as, as, soon as I acknowledge it. I just want to see you want to come to Christ today. You want to receive forgiveness and cleansing from your sin. Anyone else? Thank you, Lord. Maybe you're here this morning and you'd be honest and say, you know, I've been living my life primarily out of my old birth, like I've been living by my flesh. I've been allowing things in my life. I love God. I want to serve God. I want to do the things he's called me to do. But man, I just have, I've been struggling with giving into temptation and living this thing out of my own life. And today I need to turn a page, man. I need to turn a page today and I need God to help me with that. If that's you all over the room, I want you to lift your hand. Let me see it. I just want to pray for you. I won't embarrass you at all across this room. Thank you, thank you, thank you. 
Thank you. Others, thank you. 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 I want you to stand with me all over the room today. Here's what I want to do. I think because we're humans, this is a great moment, an opportunity to do a little bit of work with Jesus. I know you're going to run out. You've got family things. You've got things going today. Do not leave this place. Take a moment and respond to God. Remind yourself of his faithfulness, of his goodness. Repent of the things in your life where you've let the talons of the enemy get in, the talons of sin sink into your flesh and you're struggling. Do the business with God today that you need to do before you leave this place. Does that make sense? Hello? Don't leave this place allowing those things to still be hanging on your life. Our worship team's gonna play. I wanna open the altars. If you wanna come and spend a few moments with the Lord, I wanna invite you to come. We'll dismiss in just a second, but would you come and just spend a few moments with the Lord as Jim and our team leads us this morning.